You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Zach said, uh, my name's Houston, I'm Chris playing resident here, and today we're starting a new series, the book of Zephaniah, like we said, three weeks we'll be here, and uh, we're calling it the day of the Lord, and there's two reasons for that, the first is that the name the day of the Lord is very cool, I think it's a great name, sounds very metal, right, sounds like a kung fu movie from the 70s, Bruce Lee, kicks a lot of butt, sounds like a great time. No, the real reason why we're calling it the day of the Lord, of course, is you heard it. When we hear this book read aloud, we hear the phrase day of the Lord over and over. It's a common theme in the book of Zephaniah. In fact, uh, it's this term, day of the Lord, shows up more times here in Zephaniah than in any other prophetic book in the Bible. It's a recurring theme. It's a, a theme that starts back in the beginning of the Bible, and it goes all the way to the end, to Revelation. There's a lot to this idea, so much so that even this book that's all about the day of the Lord is not going to cover all of it. But the gist is that the day of the Lord is what we call like a day of reckoning. It's a day when God brings justice and judgment on a crooked and broken world and then sets to work rebuilding. And I'm getting a sense that some of us are uncomfortable here right now. I'm uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable thing to talk about. This is not very fun for us right now here in Madison, Wisconsin, 2022, to be talking about things like the day of the Lord in this way. And, and really, how often do we hear things, we hear people say things like, uh, you know, oh, God in the Old Testament is so wrathful. He's just like Jesus. He's loving. Maybe you've heard someone say, oh, this book, Zephaniah, it was written to a specific people at a specific time. It was a specific message for them, and we shouldn't even look at it. We shouldn't read it. Or maybe you're like me, and and you've heard people talk about things like the day of the Lord in a way that is not honoring to God. You know, Kinsey and I, we used to live in uh, Joplin, a little town in southwest Missouri, and... uh, you would hear people on the street corner sometimes shouting, holding signs, say things like, you are going to hell, things like that. Or, or we used to have this uh, community event, uh, I'm sure it still goes on, called Third Thursday. It was a great, great place. Small business owners and craftsmen and churches from all over the area, they would come together and we'd block off the whole main street in this big block party. Lots of representation of the church there, lots of good stuff. And I have a distinct memory walking down the block one time, and there's a man there, and he's holding a sign, and he's shouting angrily things like this. Like Zephaniah 1-2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And it sounded a lot like a threat that he was using. It sounded like something to the effect of, you better get your life straight and stop messing around, or else God's going to do something terrible to you. 
So what do we do with this? What do we do with a difficult book like this that is in our Bible and says things that makes us very uncomfortable? What do we do with this? I mean, is God really just someone who is full of, of anger, who seethes and burns? Is he just someone who hates? Or is the book of Zephaniah just to a specific people group and, and like we don't think about that anymore? Or is it a weapon to use to get people to act in a way you want? Maybe it's not either of those things. Maybe the book of Zephaniah and books like Zephaniah are a picture into the heart of God in a way that we are not used to today. Maybe it's a glimpse into something so big that, that is terrifying and, and it's confusing, but it is also beautiful. Maybe the best way to think about something like the day of the Lord is that it's a promise. It's a promise from God that one day he will come he will bring justice. And the justice is one of those things that is great news for some people and feels like bad news for others. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that the book of Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord, and it's broken up into three parts. Today we're looking at this first part, and it's a message to, directly to Judah. And this is God's people covenant people lived in the Old Testament. It's a warning that justice is coming and that God is not sit idly by while people destroy themselves and destroy the people around them. And the next week we're going to see what God says about the nations around Judah and really the whole world, what he's got to say to everybody. We'll see that his message to them and then what he's going to say, he's going to do about this messed up world that we live in, this brokenness that we live in. And in the third week, James is going to show us the final movement in Zephaniah, where God pulls back the curtain, and he gives us a glimpse of some of the most beautiful promises in the whole Bible. We're going to see that the Lord paints a picture that has drawn so many people to him for thousands of years. We're going to see that he has got such good plans for the world. So today we're looking at the first part. We're looking at the first message, the first movement to Judah. We're going to see three things in our text today. First, we're going to see what his judgment is against his covenant people. Second, we're going to see what he wanted them to do. And finally, we're going to see what do we do with this information today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just confess that this is difficult, and this is hard for me to wrap my head around, but Lord, I trust that if it's in your word that, that it is good, and that it's from you, and that what you are doing is you're painting a picture for us that is a beautiful picture. We trust that as we sit under your word today, that you will show up and you will be present, and Lord, we want to glorify you with this time. Lord, I pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be glorifying to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump in. First thing we do is we're going to read Zephaniah 1, 4 through 6. 
It's going to be on the screen, but yeah, if you need a Bible, we've got them in the back. Feel free to grab one. It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So first of all, a little context here. Zephaniah was a prophet who lived and prophesied somewhere between 630 and 610 B.C. His message was to Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah. It's where Jesus uh, did his final showdown in Matthew. It's where we ended the book of Matthew at. And in Jerusalem was also the temple, which is this meeting place for God and man. And the whole purpose of this place is that it was the place where the presence of the Lord lived on earth so that the people could come into his presence and they could enjoy what it is humanity was made for, and that's living with God. And so if you're getting anything in this picture about Judah, it's that their society was structured around the Lord and really their, their faith and their relationship with him. And so that's why idolatry is such a big deal for this people group. So throughout Judah's history, we see that idolatry is a recurring problem. You know, some kings uh, are described in the books of Kings and Samuel and Chronicles. Some kings are described as good kings because they only worship the Lord. And, uh, you know, they do the work to get other people in their kingdom to also only worship the Lord. And some kings are not so good kings. You know, they worship the Lord, but they don't do much to get other people to do that. And then some kings are called evil kings. Because not only do they worship these other gods, but they actively encourage other people to do it too. And so that's the idea, is that Israel, Judah, has this long, kind of difficult, messed up relationship with idolatry. And so we read this in Zephaniah, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. That's what he's referencing. He's saying that, that now that idolatry has been dealt with in some form, but there's still a, a remnant of people who worship this guy, Baal. And in fact, it, it's probably so widespread still that even the priests, the people who their sole purpose was to serve God and be that connection point between God and people, even they are corrupted. And so the picture here is that idolatry is like a poison. It's, it's, like, it's like toxins that seep into the ground and get into the water. And it's the drinking of this water over a period of time that is killing people. And in fact, it's, it's, uh, Zephaniah shows us that it's, it's the most dangerous kind of poison that there is because it's a poison that mixes with clean water and still tastes sweet. And here's what I mean by that. Verse 5 says, Those who bow down on roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. God's saying that these people are going to the roofs and they're like worshiping the stars. You know, these stars, they represent all the different gods to them. And then they turn around and still worship the Lord. And so the idea is that they're doing the right things, 
is they swear by the Lord because they still believe that he's powerful, but they also swear by this guy Milcom. And it's, it's like this idea that they're hedging. They're, they're covering their bases. So they say, yeah, definitely. We love the Lord. He's good. He's great. You know, he made all this stuff. He saved our ancestors. We love, we love that guy. He's great. Oh, but come on. I mean, we've got to cast a wide net. Because, yeah, yeah, the God, you know, God, the universe, the Lord, you know, he made things. But Baal, he's the God of the rains. Oh, we need rains for a good harvest. We don't want our people to starve. And this other guy, Milcom, he is like a king god. So he's royalty. I mean, you've got to pay honor to Milcom, you know, he's royalty. So the picture is that, you know, they continue to worship the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and the God delivered them out of Egypt and, and all that good stuff. But just in case, they also worship these other gods. Just in case. They kind of hedge. These gods they pick up from other cultures throughout the years. And we see is that this is exactly what angers the Lord. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is more favorable to people who worship just other gods than people who worship him and other gods. It's really interesting. But why is that? I mean, is this just an example of the, the pettiness of God? God can't share the limelight? Is it just an example of God doesn't want you to think about other gods too? I remember uh, a long time ago when we lived in Joplin, a uh, guy came up to me, we worked at the shelter, and he was a newer believer. And he said, I've always struggled with the idea of God asking us to worship him. He said, is God so insecure that he needs me to worship him to make him feel better? I thought, that's a really good question. And I think if God was just another guy, like if it was just me up here telling you to worship me, oh, that's terrible. That's messed up. Like, that's insecurity in me. But that's not why God gets angry with idolatry. He gets angry with idolatry because the truth is, is that there is no other God out there in the whole world that can do what he can do. Not only that, there, there's no thing and no one who loves his people and has the power to do something about the messed up things in their life. So worshiping other gods angers the Lord because worshiping anyone or anything other than him leads to death. It leads to death for the person doing it and it leads to death for the people around them. In fact, this guy Milcom, part of what it meant to worship him is child sacrifice. And so this is a lot. To pull back, get a good view of this, it's like this picture of going to temple on Saturday, Friday night. You go to temple for Sabbath. You, know, you worship the Lord. You do the things. And then you go home and you kill a member of your family for Milcom. And that's dark, right? That's, this is dark. I, I think we start to see why God gets so angry at that. You know, we're not just talking about like people saying nice things to somebody else and God doesn't like that. We're talking about people doing things that are destructive, that lead to death. And they're taking others with them. 
I mean, it's, it's pretty easy standing here 2,600 plus years later and to look at these people and, and just judge them. Judge them as like mystical, pagan, like foolish, right? I mean, unlike those savages, we don't worship idols. And most of us here in the West, you know, we're not leaving church and then going and bowing down to some wooden statue in our closet. And that's because our idolatry is much more subtle than that. See, idolatry in the Bible is, is the worship of anything other than the Lord. It's this idea of, of anything that you put in between you and God, anything that you put in the space that only God can fill is idolatry. And so the, the way that we understand this, the first cent- 21st century, is we think what are the things that we build up to be more important than they are? You know, how often have we built up things like our happiness? So that our happiness is the most important thing, and if, we, and if we don't, if we're not happy, we might as well be dead. Or life's not worth living. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're depending on it to save you, if you're depending on it to give you value, if you're depending on it to give you identity, if you depend on it to give you purpose, meaning, anything, that, that's your God. That, that's our God. And so often these are good things. These are good things that God gives us. You know, the, the things that we worship in our culture so much, things like sex, money, power, these are good things that God has given us that we've elevated to the status of deity. And that's where we start to get into dangerous, tricky territory. <clears throat> All of these things are good things that God has made. Anytime they replace him, it's a bad spot to be in. And every culture has its God that it worships, or its gods. And they're often different from culture to culture, but they're always there. And And the Bible says that in every culture, every place in the world, all of these gods are leading people to destruction. And the Lord takes that very seriously. He takes very seriously anyone who comes along and starts ruining his creation. He takes very seriously anyone who comes along and starts to exploit or abuse or mistreat his people. And that, that is why God promises justice against idolatry. And in fact, I think that we should see this as comforting. I know that might be a hard pill to swallow right now, but I believe it's comforting. See, what this says is that God takes very seriously the brokenness in the world. He he takes very seriously idolatry, yes. Elsewhere in Zephaniah, and really the other minor prophets, we see things like injustice, abuse of the poor, violence against people, especially people of different people groups, just for the sake of being different people groups, all these things, God takes that very seriously. And so I think we have to be careful. We have to be careful when we think about this because there's, there's two pitfalls 
that we can fall into. When we think about how will God interact with this broken world, there's, there's two pitfalls. And we see these two pitfalls here in Zephaniah 1.12. says, that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish the men who are complacent. Some of your Bibles are going to say a note that it's like the thickening on the dregs. They're just sitting there complacent. And those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So here God's describing the people who look around them, and they see, you know, the messed up things around them. And they say, God's not going to do anything about this. In fact, what they're saying specifically is that there's no justice in the world. God will not punish those who do injustice to people around them. And, and nor will the people who do the good, the right thing, there's no reward for them. And this covers a, a wide range of feelings. But the, the idea is this. When people live their lives as if there is no Lord, no ultimate God who will come and judge, who will bring justice and set things straight, people start to live in twisted and broken ways. You know, for the person who thinks there's no punishment for evil, well, maybe that leads them to say, well, why not? Why not do it? Why not kill, steal, destroy? What consequence is there? If I don't get caught, then who cares? Or maybe, you know, there's no ultimate justice in the world. There's despair. Things are bad and they'll always be bad. Nothing will ever get better. Why bother? You see what I'm getting at here? The, the idea is that God says that the, your mindset, the belief of whether he is absent and removed or, or uncaring or whatever, is destructive. It's actually destructive. Eventually, it, it unravels people. It unravels society. And it really, really, he says that this complacency is part of the problem. See, we believe that the Lord will bring justice. One day, on the final day, he will bring perfect justice. Yes. But also before that. God cares about what's happening in the world right now. And he cares about the brokenness and the destruction and the evil in the world now. And he will do something about it. I mean, it's easy for me at this point to start to ask more questions of God. But why? Why, God? Why? Why is this still happening? Why do we see injustice in the world? Why, why do we see brokenness? Why do we see people, people hurting other people? Why do we see systems of abuse? Why do we see leaders who take advantage of people? Why do we see children hurt? Why don't you just come and do something about it now, God? Why don't you just destroy all those, words, those wicked people who, who worship sex or money or power, those people who are hurting the people around them? Why don't you do something about the people who say things like, God won't do anything about this. He doesn't care. Why don't you do something about them?
then we have to be careful. I have to be careful. Because we're paying attention to the story of the Bible. I remember that all of those things, the injustice in the world, the, the abuse, the violence, the marginalization, the exploitation, all, all those things we hate, those things aren't out there. They're in here, in my own heart. Because if we're paying attention, we'll remember that, that Jesus said that anyone who holds contempt or bitterness in his heart is culpable for murder. And anyone who looks at somebody with lustful intent is culpable for having already taken advantage of them. And so, if you're like me, you're probably not standing so high and mighty now. I'm not. You know, it's a lot easier to list all the bad things out there that they're doing. And it's very hard, now that I'm thinking about the ways that I am contributing, to still have such a high view of justice. And friends, that, that's what we have to see today. What we have to see today is the Bible thinks that there's two kinds of people in this world. And it's not good people and bad people. It's not the idea that some of us are the good guys and some of us are the bad guys. The Bible says that we are all, we're all the bad guys. The difference is between people who are repentant and people who are not repentant. We see what Zephaniah says at the end of our section today, 2, 1 through 3. He says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You notice he doesn't say, do enough good, and it might outweigh the bad that you've done. He also doesn't say, go and don't make any mistakes ever again. No, what he says here is seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, who seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Friends, I want us to see that it doesn't say be good enough because we have not been good enough. We will not be good enough. What he says is to recognize that. To recognize that we've fallen short and to seek him for help. Recognize the fact that there is a day of justice coming and that right now we're on the wrong side of it. Recognize that God's standard of justice is so much higher than ours. That he's not caught up in the muddiness of our perspective. He doesn't have our biases. He has true justice. And he has a fairly simple command here. To seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and seek humility. So there you go. There you go, easy. You got it. That's all we have to do. How do we deal with idolatry in our lives? We seek the Lord. 
How do we deal with this inclination towards injustice in our lives and injustice in the world around us? We seek righteousness. How do we prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord when he will bring justice to the world? Well, we seek humility. But I mean, we don't do that, though, right? We know that we won't do that. You know, if dealing with idolatry was just as simple as, you know, seek the Lord and stop doing other stuff, we wouldn't struggle with it. And if righteousness were just as simple as deciding that we would be good, then we would be. And if humbling ourselves was so easy that we could just do it, then it really wouldn't be humbling ourselves. But, if you've been paying attention to the story of the Bible, we know that there's good news about this. There's good news. The good news is that God knew that. He knew that we would never be good enough. He knew that we could not live up to this requirement. He knew humanity. And so he did the unthinkable. He came in and became a part of humanity. Jesus came to us as a human, and he lived the perfect life. He sought the Lord always. You know, in the wilderness, he's tempted, and Satan says, I'll give you everything if you just bow down to me. And Jesus did not. He sought the Lord perfectly. And he sought righteousness always. He always did the right thing. He always did good for people around him. He spoke out about the corruption that he saw in the leadership around him, and he did the right thing, and he led other people in it. And he was perfectly humble. He was humble to the point of a humiliating and excruciating death. We know that because of this, he took upon himself the wrath that was meant for us. For the sins of idolatry, injustice, pride, complacency, all the things that Zephaniah criticized. The Bible says that Jesus took, upon, took that upon himself and was destroyed in the process. And so we, instead of receiving the, the judgment that we deserve, we receive the reward that Jesus deserved. And because of Jesus, we can be hidden on the day of the Lord, the ultimate one. Like Zephaniah 2.3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble. And at the end it says, Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. We know that we can be hidden because we were hidden in Jesus when he experienced the day of the Lord. And it is to the degree that we understand and internalize and receive the truth of the gospel that when we were messed up, that we were still broken people, that Jesus died for us, that is when we can start the process of following Zephaniah 2.3, of seeking the Lord, seeking righteousness, and seeking humility. Because it's only when we truly see the gospel that we can start to see uh, the beauty and the power of God and, and to seek him earnestly. And it's only when we see that uh, both that Jesus lived a perfect life and that he died as a consequence of our shortcomings, it's only when we really see that that we can start to seek righteousness. And it's only when we see the ultimate price that Jesus paid the ultimate picture of humility in the life of Jesus, 
that we can really start to seek humility. But I cannot, I cannot stress enough, this is not the result of willpower. This is not the result of just trying hard enough. This is the result of Jesus' work and the Holy Spirit in us. So if you don't know Jesus, I, I'd encourage you now to call out to him. He is able to save you from the path of destruction that you're on. I would encourage you to follow him because he's worth it. Like I say, he's the only God who is a good God worth following. And we know this because he came to us and he gave himself for you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I want us to know two things today. First, again, there's, it's only in understanding and internalizing the gospel that we can even start the process of seeking the Lord, of seeking righteousness, and of seeking humility. We have to really internalize and take in the message of the gospel and pray for the transformation of the Holy Spirit so that we can be people who can actually reflect, actually reflect this well. The second thing that we should know is that the day of the Lord is coming. The day when Jesus comes back once and for all and fixes things perfectly is coming. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10 says the Lord is patient. He is so patient. It says that he is waiting, but it's not of slowness. He's not just delaying, but it's out of patience because he has a desire that everybody would repent and follow him. But that does not mean that he won't come. It does not mean that he's going to wait forever. There's a day coming, Second Peter says, where he'll come like a thunderclap, and, and the skies will be torn open, and the things of the earth that we have worshipped will melt away and dissolve and on that day, Jesus will make things new, and he will make things good, and he'll make things right. And that we will get to live with him for the rest of eternity in a way that we were always meant to live, living the life that we were always meant to live, enjoying his presence like we were always meant to have. And so, with the church all throughout eternity, we pray, Lord Jesus, come soon. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for hard words that we have to chew on and process. We thank you that even though your judgment is, is hard and uncomfortable, we thank you that it means that you care, that you care about justice, you care about what happens in this world, that you care about what people do to each other, and that you've promised that you will make it right. Ultimately, one day, when Jesus returns, we know that you'll set things perfectly right. We also believe that you're working justice now in the world, Lord. You're working through people and, and things and situations that you, that you are working justice in the world, Lord. So we thank you for that. We pray that as we consider what justice means and we consider what idolatry means, that you would transform our hearts, Lord, so that we could worship you well and follow you well, that we could live justly and love mercy and walk humbly with you, Lord. 
We thank you for everything you give us, and we thank you that your life, death, and resurrection, Jesus, is what enables all of this. In his name we pray. Amen.